it may be perhaps because of the proximity of Northern Michigan University, where my wife and I attended so many years ago, that I think back to those days and all the things that were taught me, the things that initially did not make much sense, but as I would look at these Christians who were older than me, including ones at this church, because we attended here, my wife and I, back in the days we were friends, that friendship kept on going. And I'm happy to say that after 47 years of marriage, we're still friends. So... I reflect back on the great things that were taught us that initially, as I said, didn't quite make sense to me. One of them was that prayer changes you. I thought, how does prayer change you? I mean, if I'm praying for someone else, I can see why they would be changed, but how would that change me? I was also told you need to have a prayer book and I put a page on all your, well, most of these chairs as an example of what was taught me. And as I reflect back on those things and my decision is to say, well, you know, I don't know how this works. I don't quite understand this. But because you know more than me and I'm just going to do what you say. But again, I don't quite get it. But I thank God, looking back at those days that those people taught me those things, they changed my life. Today, I'm going to talk to you about making spiritual markers. This is what someone told me I needed to do. Making spiritual markers in your life. A spiritual marker is some time in your life where you're praying and God touches your life and does something remarkable. And you need to remember that. You need to write it down. And I began doing that many years ago, back around 71 or so. The importance of doing this is not to live in the past as you go back and reflect on these markers, but to help and encourage you as you live in the present and face new challenges. Because if God did that then, he's able to save and help me now. The first marker I'm going to share with you, and I have many, I'm happy to say, is when my wife and I were involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. We also continued that involvement in seminary. I was an associate staff at Southern Methodist University, SMU in Dallas. And during that time, uh, we decided to go do a missionary internship. My wife's family, all her grandparents were from Eastern Europe. And so I thought, I wonder if we could go there. And this, is, this, of course, was back during the days of the Iron Curtain. And I'm not particularly brave. I'm not going to say that I was. But just out of curiosity, I, I went and talked to our mission prof and asked him, what are some opportunities, I wonder, in Eastern Europe? And he kind of looked at me. And of course, they never advertised that. He said, I just got a letter yesterday from one of my former students looking for people to help him in a Bible camp in southern Poland. So my wife and I prayed about going there. And as the day came closer, and I saw this also reflected a little bit in our Guatemala team, things started to go wrong. In fact, I wouldn't say things started to go wrong. Truthfully, everything started to go wrong. Nothing, in fact, went right. I remember sitting in a hotel room in Chicago in May of 1977, and I got a little piece of paper, and I wrote on it all the things that had gone wrong. And I'm so glad I kept this little piece of paper. 
because of a variety of things, I won't, through all the de- won't go through all the details, but different things were being tossed at us at the last minute. I had no time to finish our visas, to get our visas applied for. I had no money for the plane to go to Europe because they kept tossing the extra costs on us. I mean, within the hour, this was happening. I had no money to pay the bills that we had originally agreed to pay just in our general life. I had no money to fix my car. And all these things happened very quickly because we were covered up to that moment. I had no money for a plane to go home afterwards. I was working on my thesis, and because of a variety of problems, I had no time to finish my thesis. My dad had given me a really good guitar as a graduation present from Northern Michigan, a Gibson Hummingbird guitar, and it was damaged inside. I had no money to fix that. And then for the next year, I had no money to go to school because the job I had that had paid every bill, I lost it. I had gotten a promotion as a sailor, a lookout on a passenger boat going from Canada to the U.S., and they wanted me to come back early that year because I had a new position, and I explained I couldn't do it. I had to finish my, my classes, and they said, well, don't bother coming at all. And at that same moment, God decided to give me some physical pain. I just suffered bursitis. My whole left side just stiffed up. And they wanted me to go to a mountainous region where you do a lot of up and down climbing and you don't do a lot of riding around in cars. Everything had gone wrong. I couldn't think of anything that went right. I just completed a class in the book of Psalms. And my professor, Dr. Hugh Ross, a great Hebrew scholar, pointed out to us, as you read the Psalms, you read these laments, They're prayers, they're put into music, they're sung to God. And very often the psalmist would thank God for the answer to prayer before he got it. It was a faith thank you. So I wrote on the bottom of this little piece of paper, impossible, praise God, as I thought about those psalms. Within hours, just a couple hours of praying that prayer, God started rolling in the answers. Every single one of those prayers got answered within hours and within two weeks. Every single one of them. From sources I never would have imagined. Things, I won't go through all the details. Time does not allow. But God rescued us. I'm convinced that was providential. God took everything away to show that he could supply everything that we needed. Now, the principles that I'm sharing with you today are true for every Christian throughout all ages. The specific things of how God worked out those prayers in my life are always going to be different than the way he works out those specific things in your life based on your giftedness, your unique circumstances. But you know what? The principles are always going to work. I was struggling with tremendous anxiety. And every verse that had to do with worry and anxiety, I would memorize it. And I would pray, you know, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in any, everything in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, very important, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, and I know Pastor Ober preached on this a while back, that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I could quote other verses. So I cast these anxieties on God. And as I took these pages and put them in a loose leaf, This is what I wrote down. I would write down my prayer request and the date I prayed it. I would write down the date it got answered and what what was the answer. Because our prayers are not always yes. 
Sometimes they're yes. Sometimes there's, there's no. And sometimes you got to wait. Every once in a while to this day, when things go bump in the night, things don't work, there's something negative happen, happening to us or members of my family, I would often go back and I'd take that little paper out. And I'd think, God, you rescued us then. You're going to rescue us now. And those principles are true for every Christian. You cast your anxiety on him. You ask God to do for you whatever you need. And some way, somehow, God is going to enter your life and he's going to meet that need, whether to endure or whether to give you a positive answer or to endure if it's a negative. The principles always work for everyone. The second marker is giving to the Lord's work. When I think back about the Holy Spirit entering a Christian's life when I became a believer on June 17, 1970, I changed... Be- Immediately, the Holy Spirit never leaves you where you're at. He always changes everything he touches. God is a creator, and he makes things new, and he's making you and I new every day. I was not a prayer. I became a prayer, obviously, when I came to know Jesus as my Savior. And I was, I was also never a giver. This is another thing that God did in, our, in my life I want to share with you. I looked at our visa card years ago. And we all know the old ancient Roman saying, Vini, Vidi, Visa. I came, I saw, I bought. And, and I will own up to it. It was more my fault than my wife. She's not here to defend herself. She's out teaching little kids, but you can tell her I defended her. It was my problem, mostly more than hers. And I wanted to do the right thing, so I would go and uh, got a loan at a cheaper rate, would pay off my credit card, and then watch as my credit card went right back up again to the limit. And I realized this is not going to work. And I had committed, my wife and I had committed to regular giving. And even though it's not quite biblical to say God requires a tithe, we are to give as God blesses. But I thought a tithe is at least what we should give. And so I committed to that, and I realized we weren't doing it. So I went to my prayer book and I wrote this down. And this was a big act of faith. Throw away our visa card. Do what they call plastic surgery. I did that on January 21st, 1983. Also on that same day, right on the next line, I said, I want to be faithful in our tithe to give her the first fruits rather than the last fruits. Again, the same date. Uh, January 21st, 83. On April 29th, I had a startling revelation. I didn't know how this was possible. I'm relatively good at math. When I did all the numbers, I thought there's no possible way that we can give this amount. There's no possible way. The, 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 The money just doesn't balance out. Yet on April, April 29th, 1983, I wrote, there's life after Visa. We are making it without visa. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The same, uh, a couple months later, I wrote, we are trusting by faith. And you know, from that day, from that very day and that very time, we've been able to give that amount to this very day, even though we are retired now. God was faithful to us. God will be faithful to you if you honor him, 
you follow his word, he's going to show up in your life and somehow. The universal history of saints will tell you that is absolutely true. I put that verse there. It's a common verse that's used to describe giving. You know, uh, whoever gives sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever gives generously will also reap generously. For God loves the cheerful giver. And I'm sure you probably heard that word cheerful is a Greek word hilarious. Where, you know, hilarity, we get our English word hilarity from. I don't break into giggling and uncontrollable laughter when I give, but I enjoy giving. And I didn't do that before becoming a Christian. And we still are able to do that to this day, thank God. Third marker, to pray for people to come to faith. This was a big deal to me. I immediately felt upon, upon becoming a Christian, I had to tell my friends, I had to tell my family. I didn't want to tell my parents. I was afraid of them. they just think I was strange. And I remember going to a Campus Crusade uh, conference in Green Lake, Wisconsin, the, about two months, three months after I got saved. Two weeks after I came to know the Lord, I shipped out on a Great Lakes, Great Lakes ore carrier. Three months later, I got off right here at the dock in Marquette to go to school. So I didn't want to tell my father, didn't want to tell my mother, but as time went on, they began to notice something different had happened to me. And so they began to ask me, what's different about you? And I didn't want to explain that to them in detail. They just said, is it, they knew I had gotten involved with church and that I was coming here. And I said, well, it's, it's just spiritual. But as time went on, they kept asking me. So pretty soon I just told them my story, my testimony. And over time, as I prayed for them, both of them came to know the Lord within several years. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And Paul says, and pray for us that we may be given openings for the, for the gospel for which we are in chains. And he says another line right after that. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. That's a thing we often forget. We need to walk the talk. If we are not walking the talk, we have a very diminished witness for Jesus Christ. I don't think my parents, at least humanly speaking, would have come to know Jesus Christ if they didn't see a whole lot of changes going on in me. We have to be wise in the way we act. In the next line, and I'll, I'll come back to it later on, let your conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt so that you would know how to answer everyone. We need to be careful in our speech, in our demeanor, and I'll come back to it a little bit later on. So I prayed for people, prayed for my parents, prayed for my friends, and I got opportunities to talk to just about every single one of them. And time does not allow for me <laughs> to tell you every story, but I'm going to tell you a couple. And I'll go to another page here. When the Billy Graham film was going around, one of the films back in 1985, I was given the task by a converged church in Green Bay to take over that area and bring other churches in and run the whole program of this new Billy Graham film. And we came up with this idea to have these Bethel prayer triplet things based on the verses in uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 4.12, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And in it, we encourage people to pray for families and friends, people that God has laid in their hearts so they would come to the film and perhaps come to know Jesus as their Savior. 
And I got together with a couple other guys from that church, and we met Tuesday mornings at the Hardee's at 6.30, I think, for a couple years. And we prayed for all these people. A couple of people, I won't give you the whole story. One of them came to my Bible study. Another one uh, wasn't interested. Another one, oh, here's a story I'll tell you about him. One of the guys was a guy that I grew up with. Our fathers are best friends. They were friends before we were born. We were literally cradle buddies. He was also living in Green Bay at the time. And I knew he was doing things that, let's just say, he would need to repent of. And so I invited him to the film, and he declined. But I kept praying for him. Every once in a while, I'd run into him. And I'd ask him out to lunch. He was always busy. He couldn't meet with me. And but occasionally, I'd run into him at the mall. And I'm praying biblical prayers for him, like we're outlining that brochure. John 16 prayer, Jesus says, it's for, good, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if he comes, he will convict the world of guilt regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And my friend was doing some sin. And so he would tell me about his life and his things were not going well and just weren't working out. And I had people in my church actually that worked for him and worked next to him. So I knew some things that were going on. And I'm sure on my outward appearance, I was probably, oh, that's just terrible. Inwardly, I said, yeah, God, kick him again, harder. <laughs> he needed to be convicted. Nothing happened. Finally, after a couple years of praying, he agreed to meet me for lunch. So I, we met outside the paper company where he was an executive at, and we went to a pizza hut. I'll never forget that day. This is actually three years later. I wrote it down. So this was... August 1st of 1985. Now I'm skipping over to, uh, to uh, July 11th, uh, 1988. So he's sitting across me as we're having peace, and there's this dark board behind him. So I share with him the Campus Crusades for Christ's four spiritual laws. Walk him through the whole gospel. And the whole time he's kind of looking over to the side, looking at his watch. And I thought, this is going nowhere. I remember walking out after that lunch, looking up into this overcast sky, thinking, God, there's a greater likelihood I'm going to see that board in heaven and, rather than him. Fast forward a few years later. I had just moved to New Jersey. After five years of praying for this guy, and I thought that was the most useless, literally, I thought that was the most wasted and useless sharing of the gospel I have ever done in my entire life was that moment with him. So I get a call. It's from him. He had moved away from Green Bay, and he asked me to be a reference for him, and he wanted to go to the school. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a Christian school. Yes, I want to go, and he wanted to go into law, and uh, smart guy, and I want to be a, a lawyer who has morals and ethics. And I thought, this is not this guy that I know. And I had this wild, crazy thought. No, it couldn't possibly be true. No way. But somehow I got the words out. I said, did you become a Christian? He said, yes, I did, Rick. You probably don't remember this. Remember that day you invited me out to lunch? Yeah. Actually, I would never forget it. He said, I never forgot that day. He did a lot of things, and as he went out into, uh, he was in the reserves of the Navy, got called up. He was a captain of the United States Navy. He was in San Diego, and he said, I looked out over the ocean, and I just thought about all the people that I hurt in my life. 
And he had. And I knew I needed a savior. He trusted Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, that guy's life changed. Time does not allow for me to give you more stories. But to this day, that guy has lived a different life. And that was the most useless, I thought, most wasted effort in evangelism I'd ever had in my life. But God didn't think so. He thought he would use that. Here's another great prayer request. I prayed for my family. Again, the principles are true. The specifics are going to be unique to me. I only offer this as an example of how God does work. I prayed for my family. Um, Jesus told the gathering demoniac, go home and tell your family how much the Lord has done for you, Mark 5, 19. So I started praying for them. And we have a family reunion every year. Not all families do this. It's kind of rare, I think. But we get together a lot, which is one of the reasons why Pam and I moved back uh, to the UP a year ago to be, spend more time with them. This is at our family farm. And uh, I would go to church every Sunday because of things I learned in this church 40, uh, 50 years ago. Church is important. So no matter where I was, I'd go to church. So we were out at our camp and our farm in the middle of Stonington, the Rapid River, and I'd drive 19 miles to go to a church. So my wife and, and my mother suggested, why don't we do service here? And I thought, my relatives are not going to want to go to this. I, I thought maybe my mother, my wife possibly, maybe a nephew or niece who wanted something for Christmas might show up. We had 21 people sleeping there overnight. So this is last minute, spur of the moment. Out of 21 people, 21 people showed up at that service that day. I was preaching a sermon on John 9, the man born blind, at my church in New Jersey the next week. So I had a sermon prepared. Every single Sunday from that day in 1993 to this, we got between 38 to 68 people of my family, relatives and friends, to show up at that service. They don't all believe in Jesus, but because of the things that God taught Pam and I and how to behave and be wise toward outsiders, God gave us the opportunity to at least talk to them. He opened the door, and a number of them have come to Christ. A number of them are still hanging out there, and we still continue to pray for them. Now, God's going to answer your prayers differently. There's going to be specific things that are going to be applicable to you and your family. I'm just going to tell you, you pray, you pray for open doors. God will answer that. And he's going to give you at least the opportunity to talk to him. Over the years, I prayed for people. They haven't all trusted Jesus as their Savior. But at least I got the chance to talk to them. And it was sometimes very surprising and unexpected chances. The fourth marker. This is somewhat a difficult one. I probably share a similar opinion to many of you what's happening in our country today. Truthfully, let's be honest, it's appalling. It seems like they've got the crosshairs on us and people are literally dying because of policies that our government has, has embraced. But you know, in the word of God, it says in, in 1 Timothy 2 that we are to pray for kings and all those in authority over us, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And then he goes on to say, this is good. And pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So I started praying, and I have lists of politicians praying for our leaders, the ones I liked and voted for, and especially for the ones I didn't like and didn't vote for. You vote for everybody. You vote for everybody. I mean, excuse me, you pray for everybody, whether you voted for them or not. 
you don't vote for everybody. So I started uh, praying these prayers. And I had a friend uh, that I grew up with. Uh, probably you heard of him. Maybe most of you didn't vote for him. But his name is Bart Stupek. We grew up together. He was over at my house uh, eating dinner. He and my father were very close. My dad was a scoutmaster, and uh, he was very good at leading boys. Uh, even though Bart might not be on your side of the aisle, I can tell you he organized Bible studies, uh, taking about 80-some congressmen together on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, and they followed Focus on the Family Bible study materials. Uh, these were people that didn't always agree on everything, but they agreed on who God was. Anyway, during uh, 2009, a chief justice, of the, excuse me, a justice of the Supreme Court by the name of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. During that week, a Christian evangelical congressman stood up and basically said, isn't that great? He didn't use that specific word, but this will give George Bush an opportunity to nominate a justice that's going to be on our side and do things that we would like to have done. So basically, it's great that she's going to die. And I thought that was a terrible witness for Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just a little guy, just a little pastor, you know, leading a men's group in the middle of New Jersey. And I thought, what can we do? Anything we can do? So I thought, I got my men's group together. Let's pray for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Let's pray for her life. You know, she's a Jewish woman, and she thinks what evangelical Christians want her to die a painful death and go burn in hell for all eternity. That's the message that she's hearing. We've got to change that message. I think the principal motivation for evangelism is to glorify God, and the second is to win that person to faith. We quote John 3.16 so often, for God so loved the world, you know the rest, but we forget the next line. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So we put a card together. She's Jewish, so I got a Jewish card with, a Jewish, with an Old Testament Bible verse on it. We wrote, I wrote her a letter, and I wrote here, Dear Ruth, I've asked the men in my church to pray for you in your struggle with cancer. We are praying that the Lord might bring healing into your life. When my wife contracted cancer years ago, and she did, stage four melanoma, it's by the grace of God, she's alive, I got 1,000 people to pray for her, literally 1,000 people at Dallas Seminary. And God healed her. I'm praying that he will do the same for you. And having an elder who ran a fudge shop, he kind of clued me in on this. And I said to her, P.S., prayer helps in any situation, but a little chocolate doesn't hurt either. So I, I said, enjoy the small gift of Godiva chocolate. And I just sent it off to her. I'd also written her a letter, one-page letter, on how to witness to Jews... Uh, uh, I'd read a book by the Jews for Jesus group, and I wrote a letter explaining the gospel to her using Old Testament verses. And I thought that would be the end of it. But it turned out it wasn't. She wrote me back. This is from the Supreme Court of the United States, Washington, D.C. From the Chambers of Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Dear Pastor Lawrence and members of the Calvary Bible Church, I was deeply touched by your prayers and caring. The Godiva certificate will be turned into delectable chocolates to share. 
with my chambers, with my chamber staff. A thousand thanks and every best wish. You know, I don't know that she trusted Jesus as a savior. I would hope that she did, but I have no evidence that she did. But I know one thing, we glorified God in, her, in our witness to that woman. We need to remember that God did not call us to throw stones at people. He called us to throw a life ring to them, to try and save them. That's our job. You know, I found out when I started praying for people, including a lot of relatives that I had difficulty with, that it was almost as if I were a third person looking in. I realized I'm talking different to them. I'm acting different toward them. And I realized something that I've been taught here many, many years ago. Prayer changes you. It literally will change how you act, how you talk, and how you behave. It'll change your life. So I continue to pray for those people I like and for those people I don't. That's our job. But we need to remember our words. And I'm coming back to a verse I quoted a little while ago. Some of our words can be so caustic and so adversarial. We need to step back. We need to fight this battle. We have a war to fight, but it's a spiritual war more than a political one. It's a spiritual war. And at the end of that passage about witnessing, Paul writes, let your conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt so that you would know how to answer everyone. And then a second verse I quote from 1 Peter 3.15. I know both in Campus Crusade material years ago and in the Navigator material, I get these little business cards with verses on them. You might remember those. And oddly enough, when both Crusade and Navigators would put the verse of 1 Peter 3.15 on it, they would leave out the first part and the last part. Because the verse, the principle that they were going at, but, uh, but in your heart, uh, starts out, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Then they would quote this, they'd leave that out. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, period. But they leave out the next line. They don't do that anymore. Years later, I think they, were, they realized that was a mistake. And they add the next line. But do this with gentleness and respect. We need to find language that communicates the truth of the gospel, but in a way the gospel needs to present it in a way that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive to people who would otherwise be turned off to it. So the fifth marker, well, is just to make a prayer book. I've given the staff a three-page outline of Ken Boa's handbooks to prayer. And if you want this little three-page thing, you can just you know, email the office and they'll email it back to you. This is the outline that I've been following for many years, Ken Boa's Handbook to Prayer. And you can actually get it online. It's free in a PDF. But in this prayer book of mine, I put a lot more things in there than I'm even telling you about today. But time does not allow for me to add any more. But I want to tell you, prayer works. Prayer will change your life and the lives of those around you. Thank you.